Hello, and welcome to ADHD Essentials, part of the ADHD Rewired Podcast Network. I'm your host, Brendan Mahan. I'm a former teacher and mental health clinician turned ADHD coach, trainer, and consultant. I can be reached at brendan at adhdessentials.com. Here at ADHD Essentials, we help families develop the skills and knowledge needed to better manage attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. Visit ADHDessentials.com for more details. The next session of the ADHD Essentials online parent coaching groups will run on Tuesdays and Thursdays for seven weeks from Tuesday, September 18th through Thursday, November 1st. Why seven weeks? Because I've added another theme. Discipline. How we get our kids to do what we ask of them and what to do when they don't. And of course, the six other themes, systems and structures, communication, emotions, self-care, connection, and questions all remain. Registration will close on Monday, September 10th, so go to ADHDessentials.com slash parent groups right now for more information and to sign up for a free 15 to 20 minute pre-screening call to see if the groups are right for you. In fact, if you get there quick enough, you might even beat me to updating the webpage because I haven't added discipline yet. Maybe if I were more disciplined. This is episode 34. In today's episode, we're talking to Joyce Kubik. Joyce is a mother with ADHD of kids with ADHD. In fact, her kids with ADHD now have ADHD kids of their own. Joyce is also an ADHD coach. In fact, she was among the first. Hers are the shoulders that so many of us stand on while doing this work. She's a pioneer in the industry, and it was my great honor to talk to her about her life and work. Today, we're talking about Joyce's journey growing up with ADHD in the 50s and 60s, her drive to get a college degree, academic tips for students, and Joyce's bridge model of ADHD. All right, let's get rolling. Well, to begin with, growing up with ADHD was not a lot of fun when nobody knew anything about it. And if they did know anything about it, they certainly weren't going to talk about it. Mental health was just not an issue. Because you were a child of the 50s and 60s. That's right. So I was supposed to be perfect and nothing was wrong. And, you know. So anytime I did anything, I was always getting criticized. And I couldn't seem to be able to keep on task, couldn't do what the rest of the kids do. I had four brothers and sisters, um, and we were all a year apart. So my mother had to really kind of keep everybody in line. Um, and so what in that whole process, every time we were doing things, I, being a hyperactive person, I was always making it much grander and much greater and so much more fun and uh, doing homework with my brothers. And we're at this little tiny round table that probably seats four. So five of us are there with all of our school books. <laughs> and now we're going to do homework. But I couldn't just do homework because I'm always fidgeting and I'm always fooling around. So I would start wadding up little pieces of paper and hit slip balls over to my brothers, you know, trying to do their homework and stay out of trouble. But my one brother always had to be, to be join me with the trouble. He kind of liked that. And so we didn't think we were going to get caught. And the book falls on the floor. And I thought, oh, don't worry, mom didn't see that, you know. And <laughs> the thing I know, there's my mother standing next to me, both hands on her hips, 
and she's saying, Joyce Ann, what's going on here? And that's usually what you got called, both names, you know. Yeah, that means you're in trouble. Yeah, so I was in trouble. So I was isolated from the rest of the group, and I had to go do my homework and go somewhere else and do it. So what my mother would say, okay, go over here. You didn't clean that up. You didn't clean that up. You didn't finish that. You didn't finish this. You know, when are you going to learn? You know, I've told you this a hundred times. When are you going to learn? And, if, and of course, I had every excuse that you can think of. I had the best excuses. I, I did everything I could and fought my way to be able to say, I'm innocent. I'm good. Yes, I'm looking at the mess, and you're right, but it's not my fault. Yeah, because we don't want to carry that, right? The kids, kids don't want to carry all that weight of maybe devastation is a little bit too strong of a word, but, but sort of the chaos that can be in their wake, right? Yes. That just mm-hmm. There is stuff everywhere. And yes. when our parents just say, this, 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 and this, that's all on you. Uh-huh. That's overwhelming. We don't want to be accountable yes. to all that emotionally or just in the practical side of having to do all of that. Yes. But if mom and dad say, hey, what's going on with this? How come this mm-hmm. part of the living room is a train wreck? What's going on? Then that we can tackle. That's one thing. Mm-hmm. And they can grab us five minutes later and be like, what about this over here? <laughs> <laughs> I know. And she would give me four or five things that I had to clean up. And I'd remember maybe two of them. And then I would be, her favorite thing was to grab you by the ear. That was sort of like, you, I've got your, your attention now, don't I? So that was her way. I mean, she was trying everything she could to get me to, to focus and pay attention to what she's saying. Mm-hmm. So that's what they would do. They grab you by the ear and say, you didn't do this one. I told you that. I just told you that. I mean, that's, what, that's how it was back then. And it wasn't like she was abusive. It was just, it, it, you knew that she was going to pull your ear off. if you, you, know, you just. And that was normal. That yeah, was sort of a normal. typical parenting style, mm-hmm. especially in right. the 50s. Oh, yes. And, and what, what parents didn't realize back then was you're just escalating the emotions. You're increasing the dysregulation and making it harder for your daughter to remember what she needs to do because she's yes. too busy being scared or anxious or mm-hmm. just in pain. Right. Yes. So when, you know, you mentioned the 50s, when, we got, when I got into my teen years, um, I wanted to do everything and anything. You know, I was the one who wanted to be in the play in school. I wanted to be able to get that uh, Beatles album or record that was out. I didn't want the album. I just wanted a record, you know. Uh, and then my father would be livid about that because he grew up in, a, in this family where singing and dancing and all that in their, in their religion was not something that you did. So that bothered him a lot. And he would say no. So my mother would have to get it for me and we'd have to hide it and play it when he wasn't around. Now, being an alcoholic, that also caused another problem. But he was gone so much that I could play my Beatles record and dance and have a good time. Your father was an alcoholic, right? Yes, my father was, yes. So in those teen years, I wanted to do it all. So you had one parent that 100% supported you and another parent who said, no, no way. You can't be in the play in school or anything. So I had a good voice. I was good at acting. You know, for some reason, people with ADD seem to be really good at acting. I guess we could look at Hollywood when we say that, right? <laughs> but I couldn't play, go into the play. I was able to go to the play, but it, he never showed up for things like that. And then he made you feel that you did an unworthy thing. So on top of being ADD, you had all these other emotional things going on in your life. So focus could not be on what you're learning. Focus couldn't be on what you needed to be doing. Your focus was constantly on how do I get out of the situation? Or is somebody going to criticize me next? Mm -hmm. You grow up in that atmosphere. 
And then I didn't understand much about the alcoholism or anything like that. And it wasn't until I was uh, in my 30s, probably, that I went in to um, this class that was for adult children of alcoholics. Mm-hmm. And they began to understand some things about me. And eventually the journey started rolling with that. I, I actually didn't even know it was an AA course. It was just something that was in a newspaper. And I think if I would have realized it was an AA course, my mind would have told me, don't go there because you're not an alcoholic. You know? Okay. So it's interesting how things kind of push you in certain directions. You didn't need to know all that to get there. You just needed to get there. So that was a very moving um, experience. Then from there, as I got older, I saw something on TV that talked about uh, this guy that had ADD. It was a 2020 show. Mm -hmm. And this guy had ADD. And he had stuff all over the place. Nothing was ever finished. Nothing was ever done. We looked at that, my husband and I, and we just looked at each other and said, that's you. That's exactly what you do. And for context, this is 1993. Yes. That you have, that you see this 2020 episode and you you learn that ADHD is even a thing. Yes. Time of recording, that's 25 years ago. Yes, exactly. So those next five years were quite interesting for me. Mm -hmm. I started my business in 1998. And during those five years, I had to pull it together. I had to figure out where I was going, what I was doing. I was really a lost, lost person when Mm -hmm. I look back on it now. I had no idea where, where everything in life was taking me. I just knew I didn't fit in where I was at. Worked in offices for years. And I didn't really like it. It was something to do to make money, to pay the rent and do all that. But I just knew that wasn't exactly where I needed to be. So I went to doctors and I went to um, a psychiatrists and, and they just said, no, you don't have ADD. You're an adult to begin with. Um, so adults don't have it. You grow out of it. Uh, they said you, you had depression and maybe some anxiety, and I started being treated for depression. Mm-hmm. And then from there, it went to, after seeing that TV show, and then he said, well, we'll try the medications. We'll see. And you were even misdiagnosed as bipolar in there somewhere, weren't you? Oh, yes, I was. Yes, yeah. I was. Mm-hmm. Which right. is not, not uncommon. No, it's not. No, because I would be so high and happy and great, but I wasn't elated. I was just happy i'm just hyper right you looked at that when i the way i described it i mean it's really important how we take our child to the doctor and um, explain to the doctor what he's doing if we make something too grandiose we're going to get the wrong diagnosis and if we have adhd we're probably going to make things too grandiose in one direction or another absolutely everything is exciting everything you know that's why when you go shopping, you don't buy the first thing you see because it's great and it's exciting. You have to pull back and say, okay, wait, is that real real, or is that your ADD saying how lovely that is? And it's pretty and I got to have it And when you don't even know what you're going to do with it. But then going into the, to the doctor's offices and that, it almost became where I was teaching them about what ADD was. And I kept telling them, no, it's not like that. It's like this. And was this based on just your personal experience or was it based on your study of ADHD at this point? No, that was still based on my personal experience. I hadn't Mm -hmm. done much reading on ADD. I had done very little reading at that time. We were just getting into the computers and and all of that at that point in time with our kids and everything. So we were really out there searching things of that sort. So we just had to kind of figure it out. 
And in your book, Unraveling ADHD, that you wrote, that's really a memoir of your journey. Mm-hmm. Reading comes up a few times. Oh, yes. Because you mentioned that you hadn't done much reading on ADHD, but just reading as a concept comes up a few times where your your mom sort of points out your potential mm-hmm. based on how much reading you used to do when you were younger. But you sort of talk about how the reading wouldn't stick. You would read stuff and couldn't remember what it was. No. Including just reading a headline and then sort of looking away from it. You would do that, that experiment mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and not have any idea what that mm-hmm. headline was. No, no. Now, the, the coach and sort of... Uh, ADHD expert in me started mm-hmm. to wonder because that comes up when you're misdiagnosed with bipolar. So I'm wondering how much of that was just a misdiagnosis and the wrong medication and was that affecting your working memory? Hmm. And, and so that's one of the questions I wanted to ask you as I was reading it was, have you found that your ability to remember the things you've read has improved since the ADHD diagnosis? Um, I would say some, but not, not really. I, I've learned how to read more consciously and I learned how to read by thinking about the words that I'm reading. Mm-hmm. I have to read things a few times in order for it to stick with me or to even get the concept. And, and a lot of people with ADD are dealing with that. Absolutely. I wouldn't say it, it really changed that much. No. Okay. I, I was on lithium there for a while and it might've been part of it. You know, but. Reading about your experience with reading got me thinking about my own reading practices and struggles on occasion. And it happened a few times while I was reading your book, so it sort of stuck in my head, which is I don't often have to go back and reread stuff to remember what it said, mm-hmm. but sometimes my brain will kind of go, hey, what exactly were the words in that sentence just then? Yes. So I have the content, like I get the general idea what the sentence said, but for some reason my brain really wants to know what specifically that sentence was. Yeah. And it's never the sentence I just read. It's always like three or four back. So I have to kind of circle back three or four sentences. I don't have to. Usually I can catch myself and stop it, but it's a weird impulse that I get. And I'll circle back two or three sentences, and now I'm half a paragraph behind where I was. And if that happens often enough, it's just, I just stop reading because I'm like, I just can't. <laughs> People actually with ADD, they actually have to learn how to read as a person with ADHD. There's a difference. We have to take notes, but not really taking notes in a traditional way. Because it's so hard to focus when you read, what I have to do is do something to keep me focused. So as I read, I will just simply write something out that's in that paragraph, three or four words, it doesn't matter what it is. It's my way of refocusing. And when I've taught people how to understand how to catch a distraction, because you'd be surprised how many people do not even know how to catch a distraction, so when I catch a distraction, then I have to stop and rewrite the last sentence that I think I read before the distraction came along. When I, I teach up at, or I used to teach at the college up in, in Ohio here, and this is how I taught students how to read, and their grades just jumped and they just improved. Because now they had a list of words and phrases that they remember reading about, and they might have even put a page number next to it. So it made studying easier. It mm-hmm. made easier. Some of them would use color in order to to remember what they read about that. A lot of different ways that we have to learn how to do this. Color is one of my favorite strategies. I find it's often one of the ones that can go off the rails the most easily. Uh Because when I take notes in something I read or on uh, if I'm taking a class and I'm sort of taking notes as I listen, Mm -hmm. the way I use color is as soon as a new concept comes up, I change to another color. 
okay. And I might use two or three colors, but that's it. Mm -hmm. I don't color code the ideas because the upkeep of that is overwhelming. Yes. Like if I have purple, blue, and green, right? And then I get to class one day and I don't have a blue pen. That whole plan just died. <laughs> yes. But if all I'm doing is swapping colors, it doesn't matter what colors I have. I can have black yeah. and blue. I can have a pencil and a pen. I can have green and orange. It doesn't matter. And that's important because you didn't allow yourself to uh, get stuck to some system or uh, you know, where everything in blue means this, everything in yellow means that. And that's really important because we can't remember all of those things that we put together. Right. It's like we have to have a chart to remember the chart. You know, to, you know. <laughs> we can't do that for most of us anyway. And connecting to that, that idea of there being too many things, right? Mm -hmm. The story about you and your husband writing down how many thoughts you had in 15 minutes. Oh, that is hilarious. Yes. <laughs> that was so hilarious. You know, because I, I thought, I know I think differently, but I need to know other people that think that way. I want to know what other people do. So I asked him, I said, you, you stay right here and you write down everything you think of in 15 minutes. I'll go in the kitchen and I'll write everything I think of in 15 minutes. And the timer goes off and I'm still writing stuff down. And I go out there and ask him, you know, I say, okay, let me see your list. Well, his list only has about four things on it. And I'm thinking, he didn't do it right. How could he have possibly thought of only four things in 15 minutes? So I told him, I said, you didn't do what I asked you to do. He said, yes, I did. And I said, that's all you thought of in 15 minutes? <laughs> and, and silently to myself, I'm thinking, that is really boring. How does anybody do that? So he said, well, let me see your list. And I said, no, I'm, I, no. And he said, no, you got to show me your list. That's, that's the rule. It's your game. So I had to show him my list, which had more than 25 things on it. Mm -hmm. And he said, oh, I know. That's how you always are. That's why I married you, because you're always so bubbly and full of life and always got ideas. And oh, great, you got to be inside. It's not as much fun as you think it is. As you depict that in the book, it gets mm -hmm. described a little bit differently because you go a little bit more into your internal monologue as, like yes. as you were talking to him and how, how when he wanted to see your list, you were like, I can't. If he doesn't think I'm crazy already, he's going to think I'm crazy. Yes. And that's, that's the end of it. Like this, uh -huh. like we're done. Mm -hmm. But his response to you is, of course, that's how many things you wrote down. Like, that's why I married I you. Know. That's why I love you. Like, I fully expected there to be 25 to 30 things in your list. Uh -huh. That yeah. makes sense. Yes. But you still got upset because you were still so caught up in the shame of having four to five times as many things as he did. Actually, it's more like five to six. Mm -hmm. It was embarrassing, yeah. Yeah, and you were so embarrassed that you weren't hearing what he was saying. No. That this thing that you were seeing as a flaw to him was a strength, was something to be attracted to. Yes. And so that, that, was, that was a moving moment in the book for me. It was very confusing for me to see and understand that other people think differently. I thought everybody thought the same way. So when I started my coaching, that's what I, the first thing I teach people is how to recognize um, how they think and how they process different. And to me, that's the most important part of all the coaching. If you don't understand that, then how can you help yourself? If you think you think like everybody else, it's not going to work because you don't. Right. So the strategies of life are different. And your bridge model is an example. Mm -hmm. That's what it is. Yes. Could you walk us through that a little bit? 
Uh, yes. If you are not a person with ADD and somebody asks you a question, if you can imagine that there are a bunch of file cabinets down down by the crook of your neck down there and all everything that you hear, touch, taste, smell, and see from the day you were born, that's in those file cabinets ready for you to pull up at the right amount, at the right time. And then there's this path that goes kind of to where your eyeball is and all that, you know. So now this path, when somebody asks you a question, the person without ADD is simply going to run down that path, go down the file cabinets, open up the drawer, get the answer, run back up in a millisecond, and they're going to tell you what the answer is. So the, answer, the question might be, who's the first president of the United States? So they're going to come right up with that answer immediately. With ADD, it doesn't matter whether the question is simple or difficult. It's a matter of how we can recall the answer, how quickly we can do that. If our mind is off somewhere else or just kind of listening to what's going on and we're asked the question, uh, we might raise our hand very quickly because we know what that answer is and immediately the answer will leave us. Because we know through uh, research I, that Barclay did that within 10 seconds, we're going to forget what we just thought of. Now, if you don't know that, you're not going to sit there and write down the answer so you can recall it. So here you go, you're trying to do the same thing the other guy did. So you're asked the question, who's the first president? The difference is, is that our path is broken. Our path is not clear. You hear people talk about not having a filter. And this would be the image I would want you to think about. Because as you're going down there to get your answer, your file cabinets are a mess. They're wide open. And everything you know about that first president is just going to just start flying out of those file cabinets. And when they fly out there, you're thinking about uh, the cherries and the tree and the ax that he cut down the tree with. So you think about all these different things. So all of a sudden you're going down that path and you're going, oh, there's an idea. This is much like trying to get the name of a movie actor or an actress. And you can't think of the name, but you can tell everything about that person, but you can't pinpoint the name. Yep. And I think we've all had that experience. So off I go, trying to get the answer. And then all of a sudden, I'm thinking of the cherries in the tree. And then I start thinking about cherry pies. Because you know what? Grandma makes great cherry pies. So now those cherry pies are in my head, not the rest of the answer. I'm off on a tangent. And then I go from the cherry pies to how many grandma makes at Christmas. And, and then I think about what she got me for Christmas. And by the time the teacher calls on me, I tell her that I got a week for Christmas. <laughs> doesn't care <laughs> so so that's what we have to really understand and when it, with a mind that thinks like that i have to learn how to say whoops you're about to go off task right get back on task write down the extraneous stuff that's going on in your head the emotional side of it too right mm -hmm. that's in there as well because if i've got my hand up raised in class let's say i managed to collect george washington right like i've got the answer i nailed yeah. it down but i don't write it down and my conscious thought shifts from George Washington to, oh, I really hope the teacher calls on me. I really, I uh -huh. hope, I hope, I hope she calls on me. And then I get called on, but I'm not at George Washington anymore. I'm too busy hoping that she calls on me. That's right. And now I have to go back through that retrieval process again. Mm -hmm. And I may well, very well come back with Chris Kringle. Yeah. That's Santa Claus. <laughs> and you might even say, I forgot the question. Right. And then they say, well, what's your hand doing up in the air? <laughs> Why are you raising your hand? Well, I knew the question yeah, because, when I raised my hand. I know, I know. But that seems humiliating to us because we know we had the answer. But to the teacher, it sounds like we're just trying to be a difficult student. Right. 
and that we shouldn't do things like that and it's not right and you know if you had a study you'd have the answer and the whole realm of, of things that come up with that and school is a good place for us to sort of drift over to because mm -hmm. school is a pretty big goal for you and a pretty big challenge yes manage to make it out of high school by the skin of your teeth a little bit yeah i think so <laughs> and then college became a goal but it was a bit of an elusive one. Yes. I dropped out of college in the 70s. I didn't make it. And then in the 80s, I tried again. And, you know, and people were telling me, you know, if you failed out of college, don't worry about it. It's just not for you. College isn't for everybody. But I knew, I absolutely knew I could do this. But I couldn't make it happen. I didn't have the skills I needed. So then again, I failed out in, uh, I think it was in the 80s when I failed out again. And then finally in 2004, um, I had graduated with uh, two degrees, one in communications and one in psychology. It was a long journey. I had learned in the process, I had learned about my ADD because when in the, in the 70s, I didn't know about it. In the 80s, I didn't know about it. But once I learned about it in the late 90s and got on some medication, then I was able to say, now I can focus better, I can do this better. So eventually, um, I, I did graduate. I learned how to read like a person with ADD, how to study as a person with ADD. I learned how to keep charts and graphs so that I could remember when my homework assignments were. Time management became a huge thing. And time management is, is important in any of my, any of my coaching. You, you just don't coach you don't even the class that I taught at the college level you don't pass the class unless you can use that planner faithfully by the end of the class and to get them to do that I had to make it 46 percent of their grade wow yeah that was pretty steep and pretty tough because I understood that value of time management it was huge and the kids learned it there were very few that didn't quite make it but a couple of them I heard from later, they finally figured it out. But it's hard for them. They come into that classroom, sitting there daring me to teach them something because they've just been through high school. <laughs> so <laughs> what could be worse than that, you know? And they think they know everything there is to know. Once you get started, once I teach that bridge story, uh, they're in. They're, they're, they get it. They know somebody knows them. Probably the highlight of my career. That's great to hear. In terms of time management, and your charts for, for paying attention to what you have to do. Do you have any tips that you could share with people who are college, high school, to help them address those academic challenges? First, they have to accept that they do have ADHD and that it will be a challenge and that they have certain things that they must do in order to get through that college agenda. They have to look at that planner every day they had to look at it every night and every morning. The students had to do check-ins with me. If they need to have a study buddy or somebody else that they can do check-ins with, that's what they need to do to get started. Everything goes in the planner, all homework assignments, all follow-ups to homework assignments. When they have large projects, they just get so overwhelmed. Their anxiety just gets off the charts because they don't know where to start. And that sounds unusual. How would you not know where to start? You start at step one, don't you? But you're ADD, so we most likely are going to start by kind of mulling around in the center of the project and figuring out what it is they really want. And that could take us hours and hours to do. 
because we'll just get up and walk away. We don't know what that teacher wants. This is crazy. And we start reading ourselves a whole list of negative thoughts as to why we can't do that assignment. So what I have to teach them how to do is how to break that all down, how to use their planners to spread out their project and not do it the last minute. I want them to plan their projects so that they are done two days before the project is due. Awesome. Because you run out of paper, you run out of ink, you know, the computer is not cooperating today. I think so many of them are afraid to trust that they're going to remember to finish the project. But once they learn how to use that planner, then they can see that today I'm doing the research. In two more days, I'm going to be reading all that research and gathering my points that I need to have in the paper that I have to write. And then they're going to be writing their first draft. And then they're going to be comparing, do I have all the points from my syllabus that they're looking for? Is it in my draft? So they will learn how to do all of those steps. And once they see it work the first time, they, they love it. Then they can't get away from it because they actually turned a paper in on time and they got to be on it. And then they're learning how to trust themselves. Yes. They're, and yeah. maybe rebuilding that trust. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. If they'd have had that when they were in middle school and high school, things would be a lot better by the time they, get, they got to college. Right. But they don't. And schools try as hard as they, they can, but they don't understand all the dynamics and all the ins and outs of, of living with ADD. So they're trying to teach them as people who don't have ADD, and that doesn't work for them. And that's one of the benefits of the ADHD diagnosis itself. One, we get to define our sandbox. These are our boundaries. And there's a whole lot of stuff outside of the ADHD sandbox that works wonderfully for other people, but doesn't work for folks with ADHD. Right. We get to eliminate a lot of choices that not everybody gets to do. And that's a benefit, except that a lot of our choices are kind of on the periphery of what most people do. <laughs> so yes, yes, so yes. we seem like we're a little bit weird or we seem like we're approaching things in the wrong way, except that we're not. Mm-hmm. We're going to get the right result. We just are maybe going to go about getting that result in a way that's unique. That makes me think of um, once I had started learning so much about this and understood it and everything, I had to tell my husband he could no longer come in the kitchen when I was cooking because he cooks from A to Z. I cook from the middle. Yeah, right from the middle. And I make this big mess. But guess what? By the end of the day, it's all gone. And the food was good. But if he's in the kitchen, he's going to say, why are you doing that first? Why don't you do this? It will work a lot better. I saw that on TV and it works a lot better. (laughs) I don't care what they do on TV. I'll get there. (laughs) And it's the same way with doing homework. You know, we'll get there. I tell parents to look the other way. You can walk in and make sure that they're working or, you know, tap the table and say, how's it going? But you got to go back out because if you see what they're doing and it's not the way you would do it, Right. Which also reminds me, too, for parents. Parents get into this um, rescue mode. Mm-hmm. And they don't realize that that's what they're doing. Those parents who have ADD also, they know what it was like growing up and living with ADD. They know if you didn't write it down, you're going to forget it. And now they're trying to teach their ADD children what they think is a benefit for them to know all this stuff ahead of time. But it's not working because now this child is just, you know, he's his neck kid is refusing help. He doesn't want to. Uh, the parent's interfering uh, because of his own guilt going on. 
Right. So I have to ask parents to step away. You know, you're in rescue mode. You have to get out of that mode. This is his ADD, not yours. And, and also just in terms of not wanting to see their kids struggle. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it can be unclear when to pull back, right? Like elementary school, it's okay to kind of do a little bit of rescuing because mm-hmm. you're hopefully teaching skills and reinforcing behaviors and stuff. Right. But then we get to middle school and they're not as successful as we would like them to be because it's a developmental disorder and their brain is lagging behind. Yep. And does that mean we continue to rescue like we would in elementary school or do we pull back? And that sort of uncertainty continues into high school. And sometimes kids don't see their parents actually pull back until they go to college. By then it's too late. By then they don't have the skills they need to navigate college. No. And so many of the brightest students are, are dropping out and they could have done it. You know, they could have, they could have survived it. So with, with parents, I think by the time uh, they get to the, the kids get to middle school, the kids are already rebelling. They don't want the interference of the parents. And it's not because they don't want their parents' help. It's because the help that they get is causing them to feel the self-esteem is starting to drop. They just right. feel very bad because why do they have to keep telling me that? They keep telling me and I keep forgetting. So I don't want to hear it anymore. And this is where they start pushing away. And this is where I wish everyone knew that there were ADHD coaches out there and that they could help these students at that early age. And we can tell them the same thing that you as a parent is telling them, but I'm going to put another whole perspective and point of view on it. Right. And then that's going to make them say, oh, that's why I can't focus. You know, that's why I have to take notes. My parents tell me to take notes. They say, I don't want to take notes. I don't like taking notes. It doesn't help. Also, as an ADHD coach, our opinion of the kid doesn't matter as much to the kid because mm-hmm. we don't have 12 years of being their parent behind our opinion. Absolutely. And that's a huge benefit because mm-hmm. it's not completely overwhelming when we say, no, nah, take another look at number six. Or we say, you really need to be using your binder. Uh-huh. Right. It, it's so much different. And I've had students that are in high school where they, they are allowed to call me before they sign up for coaching because they're not so sure that I'm not going to be just another mom out there. Mm-hmm. Uh, they don't want to hear that. So then I'm able to explain to them what my approach is and that I'm not their parent and I don't want to be their parent. I've already been a parent. <laughs> you know, that was enough. <laughs> right. So. And that's a good sort of segue for us, right? That you've been a parent. Yes, I have. With ADHD. Uh, what a nightmare. Yeah, how'd that go? Not well at all. <laughs> Not well at all. Uh, I can laugh now, but it was just terrible because I, we didn't know that they had it. Um, well, we didn't know that I had it. And so there I was trying to help my kids, and they were now up to the ages of being in um, high school. Uh, one was already off to college. And so I had just learned about mine. And you want me to tell that story about going to the doctor? Sure, whatever you're comfortable with. So, well, I told the kids that we have that I didn't tell them where I was taking them because I was afraid if I told them that I was going to take them to a doctor, then they would that we would be in this big fight, right? Mm -hmm. So I said, get home right on time tonight. No dilly dallying, as we would say, after school. And so they get home and they're sitting on the stairs. And I said, okay, we're going to go to see this doctor because mom has ADHD and I need to find out whether you girls have it too. And the one said, oh, that's, that's just for kids. That's a kid's disease. And I said, no, 
no, this is not what we're going here for. We're going to see if we can get some help for us and how we communicate and everything. And of course, the one who was always kind of the, always had an attitude, let's put it that way, um, she would say, well, it's about time you did something for me. And I thought, great. I had no idea I could even help myself, let alone you, you know. So then we go to the doctor's office and do all the diagnostic stuff, and then we, we get in the car to come home. Well, on the way home, nobody would sit in the, in the front seat with me. So we're driving home. The doctor had said both of them, one had ADD, one had ADHD, one I had to watch for anxiety, and the other one for depression. So we were just beginning stuff. So we're riding home, and it's very quiet, and uh, the, the one pops up, and she says, well, Mom, I guess we got our brains from Dad. I was really hurt. I was so hurt. And, I, it be, and now I look back on it, it's because they equated ADHD as for stupid people. Uh-huh. And that is so wrong. And we still have that going on today where they think that people with ADD just aren't smart enough. So that was an interesting, interesting start for us. And it, it wasn't all downhill from there because they were mad at me for taking them. It was more curiosity for them. And I actually got the one daughter to go with me to a conference, which had conference many years okay. ago. And she liked that because she could fly. I'm not so sure she was there for the ADD part, but, <laughs> <laughs> but we flew and we got to see Washington, D.C. So it's hard. It's very hard being a parent with ADD and having children with ADD, too. You're always defending yourself, always. And it's really hard. In what way? Well, every time they spoke to me, and this goes back to my early years of growing up, so all of this baggage is, is coming out now in, in your marriage and in your raising your kids. So they would say something to me, and I immediately thought they were accusing me of something. And if I said something to them, then they thought I was accusing them. So that we never got answers out of anything. It was this constant battle. You know, I'm right, you're not. So you can never have a conversation with them. And it made it really hard. It makes it really difficult. And have you been able to change how you communicate with them in the years since? Mm -hmm. Oh, yes. Uh, now I have this beautiful family, and they're raising their kids who also, you know, a couple of them have the ADD. And, but now it's great because I'm watching them. I'm helping them. The parents know, you know, the kids know how to help their kids. Uh, they're not the parent that's being in denial. Mm -hmm. They're not the parent that is taking everything personal because they've learned all of that. They've learned it from me. They've learned it from psychologists because they insisted that they go. Mm -hmm. So they learned a lot from all of that. They didn't exactly do everything right away. That would not be normal for a child with ADD. They have to think about that. Right. They decide if they're going to do it. Is it safe to do it? You know, we, we had to make rules about conversation. No loud voices, um, no um, defensive language. And if that happens, then we had to stop the conversation. And how would you know if it was defensive language? If it's defensive language, um, you're using more uh, accusatory words. You are probably raising your voice and it's higher pitched. So you're probably using words that are more insulting when you're trying to make a statement to correct something. Mm -hmm. And it's not going to work. So you've antagonized that person. Because I'm sure that's something my listeners were immediately wondering about. Defensive language, what does that look like? Yes, so thank you yes. For, thank you for helping us to identify that a little more. 
it has to do a lot with um, the anxiety that kids get a lot with ADD. And I don't talk, I'm not talking about clinical anxiety. I'm talking about just simply being anxious about life itself. Right. So it's more situational. Well, if we look at the, the DSM definition of ADHD and we look at the DSM definition of anxiety, Mm-hmm. They look pretty much the same. Like if you You're took right. the titles off, you wouldn't know which one was which if, unless You're you right. memorize them or something. Oh, yes. Yeah, so exactly. That yeah. anxiety goes hand in hand with ADHD. It does. They sit down to do a homework problem and, or project, and we think that they're procrastinating because they don't want to get started. But they're not procrastinating. They're trying to figure out where to start. Mm-hmm. They're trying to figure out what they have to do. But nobody's taught them how to write everything out of what you need to do, get it off your mind. So instead of doing that, even this even happens in taking tests. So in, instead of sitting down and writing a few things out to make sense to them, they're busy feeding themselves negative thoughts. I can't do this, it's stupid, I hate this class, never gonna take it again. And they feed themselves so many negative thoughts, and I refer to them as roadblocks, mm-hmm. that they can't get past the roadblocks. They can't get up there and think about what they need to do. They're stuck in that part of the brain called the amygdala, which is the emotional part of the brain. Yep. So they are stuck there and they can't get out because they're so busy doing negative thoughts. If a parent just said to them, tell me what you're thinking. First of all, they're probably not going to understand that. I usually have to prompt them and write the first one down that says, I don't know what to do. Mm -hmm. And then that kind of gets them started. And then we can kind of talk through those points and then get to doing what I have to do. It's not that simple, but that's sort of the process. Right, yeah. One of my, uh, this is sort of a pet peeve of mine for parent questions, going Mm -hmm. kind of tying a little bit of a bow in some of this, where we talk about communication, we're also talking about emotions and the amygdala and all that stuff, and and Mm -hmm. homework a little bit has come up here as well. And one of the questions that drives me craziest for parents is when they come home, the kid's already home, parent comes in, and they say, is your homework done? <laughs> and I hate that question. <laughs> because uh-huh. what you're really saying to your kid with that question is, hey, do you want to lie to me or do you want to disappoint me? Exactly. Parents need a different question, a new way to attack that problem. And it, it's as simple yeah. as, hey, how's the homework going? Now the kid can say, it's going well, or I haven't started it, or it's terrible and I hate my teacher, or whatever makes sense. Yes, and that's very, very important because when those kids come home from school, first of all, they're so exhausted from trying to hold it together all day they're mentally exhausted you know they're trying to to stay focused and they they know they're not they're just they're really exhausted and so when they come home to ask them what did you do in school today it's like well that's a pretty broad question so i asked my parents to pinpoint how was math today did math go well Mm -hmm. what did you do in math today did you further your studies on percentages or what did you do today Start off with that. If we look back at your bridge model, mm-hmm. your non-ADHD person has these filing cabinets mm-hmm. and the ADHD person, the filing cabinets are there, but they're knocked over and stuff is dumped everywhere and there's piles and yep. all kinds of stuff. Mm-hmm. So your ADHD kid, when you say, what happened in school today? That's a lot of files that you could be looking at. It is a flood. <laughs> but being yes. more specific helps me find mm-hmm. a more accurate file. Absolutely. It has to be specific. And then give them time. Give them time to think about it. Mm-hmm. We think that pause means they're trying to make something up. No, they're trying to figure out exactly what they need to tell you. They process a tad slower than most of us do. 
Right. And that's not such a bad thing rather than just jumping in there and saying anything. Yeah. There's nothing wrong with being deliberate. No, nothing at all. So just being mindful of time mm -hmm. as we sort of bring things in for a close. Do you have any ending essentials that you'd like to share with the audience around ADHD or your experience growing up from the 50s straight through to today in your life and your journey with ADHD? Well, I think that probably the most essential thing I really learned over so many years was the time management piece. I tried every planner God ever had put on earth. None of them worked. None of them. So I understand whenever I tell people they're going to use a planner that they're going to say, no, they don't work for me. But I think it's very essential that that structure be put in place. No matter how you go about doing it, somebody has to help them and teach them. And to see your child struggling, don't be so hard on them. Take a step back. Keep your voice as calm as you possibly can and know that they are struggling with something and just to get them the help they need. Don't walk into a room and say, why aren't you doing anything yet? They're sitting there. They're pausing. They don't know what they're doing. They need someone to sit down and write the first sentence, do the first math problem, and then leave the room. It's just not being so hard on them. Understand what their interruptions are about, about too. They may interrupt you, but the reason they interrupt you is because they know instinctively they're going to forget. So they have to say it right then and there because nobody's taught them, write it down or say, don't let me forget to tell you about blah, blah, blah. The dinner table is a great example. The people, when you're sitting at the dinner table, all of a sudden the kids say, oh, I gotta tell you something, I gotta tell you something. And then the parents are like, no, we're not, you're not gonna know you So the kid sits there hey, and he says, but I gotta tell you, and he's in, I gotta get nice. it. And he said, no. Thanks for staying focused all and the way dinner, They say, okay, what is it if that you If you have any thoughts and he or says, questions about today's episode, but then the feel next free morning, to email me at when they're getting ready Brendan for work and everything, ADHD Essentials. He walks in the room with a pencil and a paper and, don't and forget says, to check I need out the to website, sign this and I need two dollars and essentials. And then why didn't you tell me that last night? Well, I tried to, but I forgot. talking to you again next week. You can't be so hard on them. Keep focusing so at the dinner table, over just perfection. Put a pencil piece of paper. Ten percent right? better. And let them write need. down what they want to Thank you very much, Joyce. This was excellent. You're most welcome. I enjoyed this.